welcome back to RightsCast, a podcast from the Human Rights Centre at the University of Essex. This week, we bring you a discussion recorded earlier this year with some of our Sudanese students about their thoughts on the recent uprising in Sudan and what it's like to be studying human rights here at Essex while a revolution is unfolding at home. Before we begin, just a note that this is one of our older recordings, so apologies that the quality might be slightly lower than usual. In December 2018, austerity measures imposed by the Sudanese government under long-serving ruler Omar al-Bashir caused dramatic increases in bread and fuel prices, sparking protests across the country. These demonstrations, underpinned by years of economic hardship, corruption, and social unrest, broadened into demands for the removal of President al-Bashir. The uprising culminated on April 6th in a mass public occupation outside of the entrance to the military headquarters in Khartoum. Five days later, on April 11th, after nearly three decades in power, the military announced that al-Bashir's rule had ended. In his place, the military established a transitional government with promises of free and fair elections to follow. Yet, demonstrations continue across the nation with protesters refusing to rest until they see a full transition to a civilian government. For more on these issues, I spoke with three Essex human rights postgraduate students from Sudan to hear their thoughts on the uprising that led to the fall of a 30-year dictator, the ongoing public demonstrations, and the hopeful transition of power. For this episode, I am joined by... Omar Ahmed Idris. My name is Winnie Omar. Thank you all for taking part in this episode of the podcast. Before we get to more recent events, I wondered if someone could provide some brief context on the years leading up to December 2018 and the current uprising. Um, as a kind of background, I can start by uh, highlighting the main problems in Sudan. And I believe this problem started when we witnessed a military coup that was, was led by the Islamists in Sudan. And that happened in 1989. Uh, since then, in 30 years, Sudan was witnessed oppression, uh, witnessed a violation against women's rights, witnessed a repression of freedom of expression, of political freedoms, the right to political participation. And uh, for 30 years, we witnessed also wars in Darfur, in Luba Mountains, and one of the longest wars in Africa, the war between North and South, and that ended with the separation of South Sudan. Within all that context, we also witnessed the propaganda in media, in the official media, with the Islamists uh, raising their voices, for example, saying that war in South is part of jihad and provoking people to go and fight against South Sudanese. We witnessed this propaganda against uh, armed movement in, in Darfur as well, instead of just like highlighting the truth that all this area is marginalized areas, they lack in development, they lack in basic needs and basic free rights. So we witnessed all this, and I believe all these factors led to what happened in December last year. Actually, like before, people have been facing a, a very harsh uh, economic situation, especially after the separation of South Sudan. This also combined with a very high level of corruption in government. No access to like employment and very low minimum wage and very high in implementation rates. All of this led to like very harsh economic situation for people combined with the, of course, political oppression. 
people start going out of the street, it starts like demanding for um, decreasing of bread and oil prices, but uh, this wasn't like the real problem. The real problem was the political situation and the high level of corruption among the government subjects. So there's a significant amount of unrest and dissatisfaction with the state of the country leading up to this. What happens on December 19th, 2018? On December 19th, is, it is a kind of result of all accumulations of the bad situations and the difficult uh, on the day-to-day life among this, the, the Sudanese uh, in general. So it is just the, the beginning of the, of the revolutions. Uh, it led by the youth uh, in the country from the specific kinds of states of the, the youth, uh, start of uh, kinds of the peaceful demonstrations against the government policies in relation to all these kinds of the government policies in relation to all these kinds of the hardship situations and um, the economic uh, situations in the country. Instead of the government uh, try to respond to these kinds of the demanding in a peaceful way, the government use force in order to overcome the situations without having any kinds of uh, diplomacy in how to overcome the situation. So many people went killed and uh, many others get uh, arrested and uh, they put them in the prisons and the demonstrations was continued. So that is the beginning of the demonstrations. This is how it starts on 19th of September, and even some people are saying that it starts before 19th of December in many other towns and villages uh, all over Sudan. But the highest moment was on 19th of December. So till now, it's six months. So when we talk about how this starts and how it's just flow and continue till now, up to six months, we can see also the, the changes in the demands. As you said, it starts with the demands of because it started as a response to, to the increasing prices of bread and other daily commodities. But then up to now, we can see that people are demanding civilian-led government. They are demanding freedom, justice, and peace. And this is the slogan of the Sudanese revolution. People are chanting that we want freedom, we want justice, and we want peace. And they know how to translate this into policies, into everyday practice as well. So we can see, as I said, the development of the demands all through these six months so far. So these public demonstrations continue for several months over the course of 2018 and 2019 culminating in the April 6th sit-in in front of the military headquarters in Khartoum. Uh, by April 6th, it was one of the highest moments as well in the momentum of the protest. And people chose 6th of April because it's a symbolic date, because it is the same day that the revolution, the uh, Marel revolution, the revolution that happened in 1985, succeed at, the, at that date, 6th of April 1985. So they were just trying to emphasize on that fact and trying to say that we can do it again for the third time because it's the third revolution now in Sudan. So on 6th of April, people managed to reach into the military headquarters in Khartoum and there were thousands and thousands of people in the streets demonstrating at that day. So they all came and decided that they will start a sitting in front of the military headquarters in Khartoum. And since then, since 6th of April till June 3rd, they were like protesting there, having their daily life there, partying, doing barbecues, doing political speeches, everything. It was just the practice of daily life a revolution, while other protests continue in other towns and areas in Sudan, and they also have their settings. 
in front of uh, military headquarters, big police stations, offices. So every and each town in Sudan decide and located an area to have the stand in. So all through April up to May, there was sitting all over Sudan, accompanied by protests <coughs> everywhere as well. And the Sudanese Professional Association is a group of professionals and trade unions. So basically, they are doctors, teachers, lawyers, journalists, mm -hmm. and other professions who came together and shape and initiate this SBA. And then they initiate this bigger alliance uh, when they call and invite other political parties and opposition parties and art movement to come and join. And now we, we, we are having the biggest alliance of trade unions, uh, professionals, associations, political parties, art movement, and all the group that was against that regime, and they are willing to lead and to continue the revolution until they reach a democratic government. One thing I wanted to ask you about, in Western media, we often saw portrayals of the Sudanese uprising as being primarily led by women and youth. To what extent would you say that was reflected on the ground? Actually, like it, it may surprise like others that women are leading the protest and uh, the movement in Khartoum. But for us, like as a Sudanese women and as a Sudanese youth, it wasn't like a big surprise for us. Uh, women were there in the street uh, even before December 2018. They were there since like the military coup. They were against them. They were working, engaging heavily with other partners. They were leading demonstrations in the street in 2011, 2013, up to 2018, and up to date. Women actually played a major role on, on this demonstration through the social media, through even leading protests in the streets, through like helping to identify and recognize the NISS members who, are, who were there beating their protesters, uh, violating their rights, and all of that. And actually, like one of the big disappointments for us as a women, we can't see this reflected on the negotiation, on the participation of women in negotiation with the TMC or with their participation among the freedom and change forces nowadays in Khartoum. We are having our very big disappointment not to see this reflected in like political participation. Yes, and the whole political process that is going on in Sudan. But to back to the issue of Western media. I believe I can see the dichotomy here um, because basically the Islamist regime in Sudan suppress women, suppress their rights and launch laws that oppress them and violate them in every basic rights, the right to the personal freedoms generally and uh, all other freedoms, the right to political participation, even the right to wear whatever they want, to have the right to movement and all this was oppressed by law in Sudan. And as a result of that, there is that image about Sudanese women that shape the stereotype about Sudanese women in the Western media and foreign media generally. So you can see this image of women being flogged for some reason in Sudan as the key image that shaped the way that the world think about women in Sudan. But in reality, as we were facing all that oppression from the state, we keep on resisting. We kept on fighting against all that. And all the time we're in front lines, like defending our rights and resisting. Women and youth kept on resisting the regime more than ever, and it wasn't as surprising for us to see this continue. So after the April 6th sit-in, less than a week later, on April 11th, 2019, it's announced that President al-Bashir has stepped down. 
after the the set and uh, in front of the military headquarters there was a kind of pressure from the demonstrations that uh, can institute pressure on al-Bashir to declare or to, to step down but uh, for us it, it was a kind of a military coup it's not just a step down like he voluntary or uh, willingly so uh, military coup uh, announced that there is news uh, in Sudan, it's coming up soon, and then they declared that al-Bashir uh, stepped down and his fourth commander uh, took over the responsibility of the leading uh, of the country, and th- the people did not accept that kinds of, of the situations because it was clear that the kinds of propaganda, because he is the second person uh, in the military organizations, how can you you just the, as vice president and the and the minister of the defense you come and announce that you are taking over uh, and al-Bashir is stepped down and he announced that al-Bashir is uh, being kept in the safe place that kinds of information or that kinds of the situations did not get the acceptance from the the Sudanese in general let me say this and they continue the administrations and they forced the Ibn Auf, the one who took over, uh, has been uh, resigned immediately the following day. So they refused the role of Ibn Auf, who is formed what we call now like Transitional Military Council. It was formed from Ibn Auf and other uh, high rank officials, who is like one of the biggest supports of al Bashir. His name was Kamal Abdel Maruf. He's also resigned with Ibn Auf. He was vice uh, president of Ibn Auf. But before he left the power, he handed it over to Abdel Fattah al-Burhan and the Transitional Military Council, which one of the vice presidents of this Transitional Military Council is uh, Mohammed Hindan, uh, and he's the leader of the paramilitary, and he's the one we consider is him as a de facto leader of Sudan these days. So you mentioned Hamedi who has come to exercise a significant amount of influence in the current Transitional Military Council. What is his background? Where did he come from and how did he gain power? So Hamidi basically belonged to an institution that is very old and well known for everyone, which is the Janjaweed. They were leading the genocide and the war crimes in that war since 2003. Uh, they have different leaders that start with Musa Hilal, and he had conflict with the previous regime. And now we are seeing Hamidi as the leader of what we called rabbit support forces. And he's leading rabbit support forces for five years so far. And he managed to gain a lot of support from the Sudanese regime, from regional forces and from international community as well by making many links with them. For example, Hameti is a good friend with Saudi Arabia Authority because he's organizing the recruitment of the soldiers who go and fight in Yemen on behalf of the Saudi and Emirati-led war in, in Yemen. So he's sending Darfuri men and Darfuri children because he, he's now accused officially of recruiting teenagers and send them to that fight in Yemen. And he's also a good friend with the EU because uh, maybe you heard a lot of news about what it's called Khartoum process, which is a process led by the EU in Africa, basically North and East African countries. The main aim of that process is to limit the ability of the refugees from these areas uh, in North and East Africa, North their ability to access or to reach uh, Europe. So they empowered and they supported Hameti and its forces to have this ability to control the eastern borders of Sudan. 
so not to allow the Ethiopian and Eritrean refugees to come from the uh, eastern part to cross through, through Sudan, to reach the Mediterranean and then to cross into Europe, and then also to control the western borders of Sudan as well. And now we are discovering that he's recruiting uh, more agents from uh, other parts of the region. So from Mali, Chad, Eritrea as well. So it's a multinationality forces now. And this is very dangerous because it will be a mix of agenda as well. We are not here just talking about a Sudanese militia that is trying to reach power. We are talking about a regional power. We are talking about um, multi-agenda as well. We are seeing the Saudi and Emirati and Egyptian agenda. We can see the EU agenda as well. And we can see that the multifaceted of the international discourse about these forces. We can see in the official media and on, on the mass media that all these parts like Saudi, Emirati, Egyptian and even EU, they are talking clearly about the importance of the stability in Sudan, the importance of having civilian-led government and all this. But we can see what's happening under the table as well. We can still feel their support to these forces and the way that getting power because of all that money and all that support. And under the Transitional Military Council, what has been their response to the protests which are ongoing and have been throughout the time that they've been in power? So, uh, since they took the power, a state of emergency was already declared in Sudan. So, they began by saying we want to have a negotiation with the civilian parties and with the freedom and change forces. They will call for this negotiation, which started after the mid of April till the 3rd of June. Uh, but actually, they, they weren't really seeking for change or for the stability of Sudan. They weren't going to hand in the government to the civilian parties. We see how they use the time they gain to gain support from Saudi and Emirat. We can see like how they've been empowering themselves and how they've been taking control all over the place without giving a real chance for a real negotiation. And on top of that also, when you look at the, at the existence or the presence of the military on the ground in, in Khartoum specifically, you will just read the situation that they don't have willing, real willing of cooperating on handing over the, the, the government for the civilian-led government. There is also a kind of, uh, of news talk about more than 10,000 militia from the Janjaweed, uh, what's so-called now Rabi Support Forces, being deported before al-Bashir uh, stepped down to come and be existed in Khartoum. Now, if you look at the Khartoum, you will see that these armed forces, armed vehicles, uh, everywhere in Khartoum, you will just feel like Khartoum under a real siege. And as Malaz mentioned that this military council, they talk a lot about we are the real partner of this of these demonstrations and we are the guarantee and we are the real guard for the for the Sudanese uh, populations in general. So when you look at the, at the military existence on the ground in Khartoum and you look at the wording of this military council, you will see there is a lot of conflicting. You are talking about you are handling over the government for the civilian-led government and then you are bringing more military apparatus to be uh, in the Khartoum. So that kind of the situation, it will not give a kind of sense that they are really, really a real partner for these uh, demonstrations. Yes, I agree with that. And I want to add that uh, all during this time since April 6th until now, the military council is well focused on uh, gaining legitimacy for themselves as individuals and the, for the military council as an institution as well. 
So, for example, Hamati was moving around in different mm. towns and villages in Sudan, uh, giving public speeches, connecting with the local administrations uh, and key persons in every and each area there, and trying just to highlight himself as the coming leader. They are also trying to organize the protests that are supporting them at the military council. They organize some events led by women, led by intellectuals that they say that are supporting them. So uh, they are trying to gain this legitimacy from Sudanese in first place. And all that is supported by media. Mass media is covering that, is highlighting that as the main event that's happening now in Sudan and ignoring the fact that everyone is against that. The other thing that they are working on the international level as well. There is a lot of reports have been written about the link between um, MTC and Hemeti and some lobbying institutions. Uh, lately, we saw a former member of Congress. His name is Jim Warren. He appeared with Hemeti in one of his speeches, and he was talking to the Sudanese people as if he's showing that Americans and the U.S. government is supporting Hemeti. Later, the U.S. embassy in Khartoum denied the, his relation to the U.S. government and saying just a former uh, Congress member, and he's just representing himself. But basically, Jim Moran representing the institution that he worked on. And I think he's working for an institution called McDermott, Will and Emery. It's a lobbying institution in the U.S., and they have the contract with the military council to work in supporting them with, and linking them to some, some senators, some congressmen and women in the U.S., uh, working with them on polishing their, their images and introduce them as the coming leaders of Sudan. Uh, we also saw some reports talking about the relationship between Hemeti and other Canadian lobbying institutions, and they have a contract with $6 million to work on the same issue. And now the Sudanese in diaspora in Canada, they filed the case against that institution, against that company that is just working with militia to empower them internationally and on the national level as well. So because of all this and the general dissatisfaction with the rule of the Transitional Military Council, the demonstrations are continuing. And on June 3rd, we start to see the TMC take a much more aggressive and violent approach to the ongoing public demonstrations. Can you tell us a bit about what happened on that day? On 3rd of June, they just uh, attacked the city in front of the military uh, headquarters, and it was 4 a.m., so basically people were asleep. So they attacked them with heavy guns, with heavy weapons, with white weapons, and cheap gas as well. So over 100 persons have been killed. Many have been sexually assaulted and raped, men and women. Later, we, uh, they discovered over 50 dead bodies that have been thrown into the Nile, Nile River. So it was just a massacre that happened uh, in Khartoum, and it was also happening in many other states in Sudan. So all the other cities in other towns have been cracked down, have been attacked as well. And um, many have been killed in the other towns and injured as well. So that happened in 3rd of June, but it was followed by uh, arrests and detaining activists and well-known leaders. And up to now, there is instabilities in regard to personal security of uh, some activists who have been chased. Some of them have been arrested and tortured. There is many who was, until now are for disappeared. So with all that unstable situation, uh, politically and security-wise as well, I believe all that led some regional forces to raise concerns about what's happening in Sudan and what that can lead for as well. But on top of that, also the uh, attack 
again is a set and it was really well organized even during the 8th of Ramadan, 8th of, of May, right? Mm-hmm. We don't understand really who attacked, but definitely the, the rabid support forces because of all the, the uniform is the rabid support forces. The gun also is the rabid support forces. The vehicle also is the rabid support forces. They came and tried to disperse this, this sit-in. The, the demonstrators were trying to they resist back, but uh, they killed also during that day. They killed more than five uh, on eighth of the of May uh, from the demonstrators. And the the attempts to attack this sentence it, it continues for quite long time. Many times they can try to attack and they uh, retreat back. Also, see how they try to breed fears in the in Khartoum streets. Not only on the third of June, but even on the days after that. They began to target people in the street. They weren't like even nearby to the sitting place. They started beating people, killing people, not only in Khartoum, but also in Umdurman and in Bahri and in other states. They plug out the internet all over the country. They were trying not, not to let the people of Sudan show the world what is really happening now in Sudan. So the TMC has given a number of justifications for its violent attacks on the sit-in protests, whether it's drugs or other crime. But what is the real motivation for them attacking these protesters and blacking out the internet? What do they hope to achieve? I believe from the beginning they were expecting that Sudanese people would accept the reality that they have withdrawn al-Bashir and now they're having everything changed. And they will, as a result, they will accept the military council at the coming ruler of, of Sudan or ex-member at the coming leaders. But surprisingly, what happened is exactly the opposite. So people refused all that, rejected the fact that the same regime is coming again with the same faces to continue ruling Sudan. The same uh, military personnel, the same Islamist leaders, they are still exist there. So people keep on resisting and refusing that. And maybe they would also expect that the sit-in will not last for that long. So it was almost two months. And people were willing to continue. People were coming from outside Sudan to join the sit-in and to join the protest. So an increasing number of people were joining the sit-in every day. And it really became a carnival of freedom and uh, political participation. And uh, because people were also organizing themselves and utilize that space to maintain maybe more activity that will happen and will last after the revolution even. So I believe they saw that as a risk that's growing against their legitimacy and against their existence as a body. Also, I believe they want just to change the power dynamics. To say that we are controlling everything, we do whatever we want, and we can lie, and we can shut you up, and we can shut the internet, and we can do whatever we want. And uh, actually, the Sudanese proved them wrong again. Because the internet was shut down for a, for a month now, many people are traumatized, actually, by what happened, but they are just having their strength still, and they believe in, the, they believe in revolution. So they keep on protesting. They never stopped. They never stopped protesting at day and night. They never stopped organizing themselves and arranging different kind of small groups that are doing um, neighborhood committees and resistance uh, committees that strategize for change as well. So I wondered if you could say a bit more about the Millions March. It just happened recently at the time of recording this podcast, just about a week ago. I wondered if you could just give a little bit of information about the significance of this protest and also speak about who is organizing these efforts now, who is leading them. So as soon immediately after the crackdown of the sit-in on the 3rd of June, 
people start like a voluntary uh, civil disobedience. They were closing the street. They were calling to go back on the street again. But actually, like the internet shutdown affected a little bit the efficiency of communication between the protests in Khartoum and in other states. So people used to work with uh, neighborhood committees. It's a little committee that work in small neighborhoods trying to gather people to organize them to like make it possible for the freedom and forces change statements and other directions to be reached to everyone. So calling have been established that to go out on the street again to demand DMC to handle the power to a civilian government. And they fixed the 30th of June to, to do that. Actually, like DMC and many other weren't expected that it's going to be like a successful march. People were calling for a million march towards the presidential palace. And no one expected that uh, after the terror, after the horrific situation that they have been going through since the 3rd of June, they didn't expect people to participate in this 30th of June. And they were working for that. Like uh, TMC have arrested a lot of activists in the neighborhood committees and from the political uh, politicians and youth movements. But for their surprise, on 30th of June, like everyone was out there on the street, even like um, higher number than the ones that they participated on April. They were there, they were calling for their rights, they were calling for the TMC to held responsible for the mascara that happened on the 3rd of June, and they were calling for the immediate transformation of the government to a civilian powers. Uh, in fact, the people in Sudan are very determined, that is, I can say. Uh, instead of the shutdown of the internet, could you imagine the text messages? Right, just a small text messages, but it has a very, very powerful and strong messages. So they start sending messages across wherever you have the contact on your phone memory. You are sending the messages. 30 of June, of, of June is going to be our deadline with this military council. So uh, the people use that kinds of messages. Also, they use posters and the leaflets, a small uh, piece of the papers. They wrote some kinds of messages on calling for the massive demonstration, a million demonstration for the 30th of June. That message is across all over the Sudan. Everybody in Sudan knows that uh, 30th of June is going to be a big uh, million demonstrations uh, ever witnessed in Sudan only on the 6th of April. So with that kinds of organizations, people manage. Also, earlier mentioned in this uh, in this talk that people used to travel from city to city, from state to state, particularly those, the figure leaders of the opposition parties, they moved, they traveled across the country, they held the small kinds of symposium, small kinds of awareness about what is going to be on the 30th of June. So that means of communication also it was possible and it was uh, just a kind of surprise that the military council just thought that only through the internet, uh, the online internet like WhatsApp, Facebook, people are able to communicate. But, he, but the military council completely ignorant about the, the motivations of the Sudanese people in general, about uh, how Sudanese are so determined to get their goals because uh, they put these goals into everyone's heads that we have to win. We have to go and to show to the military council that we are able to change the situations, uh, no matter whether the internet is available or not. 
So uh, it was kind of a turning point in all over the the, the situations, uh, whether in Sudan or outside Sudan, because all the media saw how these people managed to organize this massive movement uh, without the existence of the internet. So that brings us pretty close to where things are now. I wondered if I could ask each of you to share your thoughts on what you see happening over the next few months. Obviously, no one can say for certain, but are you hopeful for this period of transition? And what do you hope might take shape from it? So basically what's happening now uh, on the political level that the, the Ethiopians and the African Union have developed an initiative to solve the issue in Sudan. And they managed to bring the post parties, the military council and the forces of freedom and change. They brought them together to the table of negotiation again because the negotiation stopped the 3rd of June after the crackdown on the settlements in Khartoum and other towns. So just yesterday afternoon, they came and sat again um, together in the same table to negotiate the Ethiopian and African Union suggestion regarding sharing power in Sudan and organizing the transitional period in Sudan. And uh, we heard that they reached an agreement to share uh, all the levels or the, the leadership council to be shared between civilians and uh, military council. This is what we have heard so far, but there is no clear information yet. But what's happening is that the negotiation is going on to solve the issue, and there is many uh, pressure put on the um, military council by some foreign countries, some regional forces as well. And I, I have to say here that the Sudanese and diaspora are playing a big role in that. They are demonstrating everywhere in front of the Sudanese embassy in London, in Washington, D.C., in Canada, and in many other places. And they're also protesting in front of the, uh, the Emiratis, the Saudi and Egyptian embassies as well, to just to express the refusal to the role that, that those countries are playing in Sudan. They are also protesting in front of the EU in many countries, uh, especially in Brussels, also to show their refusal to the role that EU played in Sudan. So uh, I'm expecting that definitely the revolution will win. This is a definite thing. I, be- I do believe in that. And I can see this coming in the future. But I can see also the hard way they are walking through. This revolution is not just against the Islamist regime, the previous regime. It's against the militarizing of system in Sudan. It's again, it's the regional forces that interfere into the Sudanese issues. It's again, it's even the, if I can say the international system that is imposed its agenda into the African countries. So it's again, it's everything. And I believe we will win. And I can see that, but we need to strategize for that. We need to push more for our rights. We need to push more for a civilian-led government. And we need to push forward the slogan of the, of the, of the revolution. We need to push forward for freedom, justice, and peace. I can say that, yes, I agree with what Winnie said concerning the, the revolution, when they will win. But also what I'm seeing on the ground now is the situation is giving me the sense of the way ahead is really very long and it's very hard and it has a lot of challenges. We claim that the regime, uh, as the military council claim that the, the regime is fault, but for me the situation is, is really as it was because uh, until now we have not seen the previous regime elites uh, to be arrested or to be shown on, on the TV, at least the national TV. They should be shown at least for the, for the Sudanese uh, population to understand and to get the real sense that 
that of regime is full. Until now, we don't know al-Bashir, whether he is in the jail or he is in private apartment being guarded by some kinds of the forces. Uh, in addition to that, also the regime, for me, it is not full because still there is a lot, a lot of uh, paramilitary military and militias being created by al-Bashir. They did not have uh, been a uh, kind of, of resolve uh, because still they are exist with their heavy guns, with their, uh, their armed vehicles, with their chain of commanders. Still they are exist. Also the national security forces, uh, they have a big division called the, the operation forces. Those who go and participate on the front lines of, of the battlefield when uh, they participated in Darfur and in South Kordofan. That divisions of the military of the of the Security Council uh, of sorry, of the national security still exist and we have never seen any kinds of procedures or arrangements for collecting their guns or resolve uh, their institutions. They are still exist. In addition to the support forces that still exist. All these kinds of the creations of the military on the ground being created by al-Bashir to protect his uh, his party, all these are exist. So it gives me a sense and it is well understood, well known that the way ahead is really hard but it is not it is not going to overcome the will of the Sudanese uh, population to reach what they are looking for. As Winnie and Omar said, it's a long way. Uh, it's a very long and hard way. In the past 30 years, we have seen what uh, al-Bashir and the Islamist regime have turning Sudan into. They're turning our country to a very horrible place with no freedom, with no opportunities for the youth to lead with a place that known with civil wars and armed conflict. But now I can see the change. I believe in people. I believe in the hopes that they are having now. I believe that we... It's a long way. We have been walking in this way since the last 30 years. We have made a huge sacrifices, not only since December 2018, but since June 1989. And I do believe people gonna make their dreams true. I know it's not an easy way. I know it's gonna take a long time to resolve all the problems and issues that Omar al-Bashir created. And I believe maybe I won't witness this in my days, but I believe it's gonna be a better place for the coming generation and there is no turning back. So yeah, I do have hope. Thank you to Winnie, Malaz, and Omer for joining me on this episode of the podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify and iTunes for more Human Rights Center content. And thank you all for listening to this episode.